0: i Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Building on last week, Will Barlow continues to describe and analyze issues with the Big Bang Theory. He considers standard biblical and scientific objections brought forward by young earth creationists. After responding to these objections, he shows how each of the main Christian views of origins deals with the Big Bang. Here now is episode 465, part seven of our Scripture and Science class Genesis and the Big Bang with Will Barlow.
1: Welcome back to Scripture and Science, session seven. In this session, we're going to be talking about Genesis 1 and the Big Bang. So in session 6, we took a brief look at physics and astronomy, and we focused primarily on the Big Bang, the current views of the Big Bang. And in this session, what we're going to do is we're going to analyze Genesis 1 in relation to some of the different uh, ways of reading Genesis 1 that we looked at, at last time in the context of the Big Bang. So in prior sessions, we saw eight different ways of reading Genesis 1. We're not going to go through all eight and relating all eight to the Big Bang here in this session. Uh, For this session, we're mostly going to focus in on young earth creationism, and then we're also going to take a brief look at uh, day age as a whole, uh, the gap theory as a whole, and we're going to look briefly at Walton and talk about what non-literal views of Genesis 1 would say about the Big Bang. I wanted to start briefly with a review of what we talked about, and this is actually an overview of what we're going to do in this session. We're going to review a little bit about the Big Bang. That's where we're going to start. Uh, We're going to talk quite a bit about Young Earth Creationism and the Big Bang. Young Earth Creationism has scriptural objections to the Big Bang, and then they have scientific objections to the Big Bang. We're going to spend a good amount of time in this session talking about both of those things. Uh, then we're going to contrast that with old Earth views in the Big Bang and talk a little bit about how those work out. And then we're going to talk about, like I said, Walton and non-literal views and how they relate to the Big Bang. So just to review a little bit of what we talked about in the last session, in basic terms, what is the Big Bang? What does the theory say in a nutshell? Uh, basically what the theory says is that the universe began approximately 13.7 billion years ago. Uh, Scientists get that number based on uh, the furthest way light that we can see in very distant objects. So that's the best number we can put on it right now. And that once the universe began, that space and matter have been expanding and cooling since then. And over time, uh, stars developed and we'll get into star development more in a little bit. But stars developed and things progressed and eventually you get uh, the conditions that are suitable for life. Now, what is the current state of the Big Bang? The current state is, it's not observable, <laughs> directly at least. Uh, we're never going to be able to travel back in time to observe the beginning. And In fact, we talked about in this prior session that that might not be the best idea to try that. <laughs> so what we do instead, what physicists do instead, is they use high energy collisions to test hypotheses related to the Big Bang. Uh, there's a, a place in Europe called the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, and what they do is they spin things round and around and around and explode these small things together and watch what happens in these explosions and see what kind of particles they get. And they try to piece that together with what the Big Bang could have looked like. I also want to mention that there is a, currently in physics, because of quantum mechanics, there is a physical restriction on understanding the first moment of the big bang. So what I'm, what I'm essentially saying is that there is a scientific reason why even the big bang doesn't handle that first little period of time at the very beginning of time and space. There is a little bit of time that theoretically physicists, they're not sure if they'll ever be able to explain that very first moment. That's a, that's a physical thing. That's not a philosophical or a religious restriction that's being placed on the science that's actually a scientific restriction we also talked about the alternatives to the big bang because uh, we talked about how the beginning of the universe the idea that the universe has a beginning in and of itself seems to point to the existence of god that seems to be one of the possible conclusions you could reach uh, with the beginning of the universe that's why the ancients either believed in a steady state universe, an eternal universe, or they were theists and they believed that God did create the universe. Those are sort of the ancient uh, arguments for the existence of the universe. And so in in modern times, scientists can't, you know, philosophically just decide that God doesn't exist. So what they try to do is come up with scientific reasons why uh, the universe is eternal or that the universe as we have it makes sense even though we're gonna see in a future session how fine-tuned this universe is for life. So here are the different options that people have proposed to the Big Bang. The oscillating universe, where you have a Big Bang, and then it could recollapse into what they call a Big Crunch, and then another Big Bang, and then another Big Crunch. And if you have an infinite number of universes in the past, then maybe at some point the right Big Bang came along, and here we are. And it could essentially be like almost an eternal kind of a state, an like eternal universe. You could have multiple universes, an infinite number of universes exist. And especially a lot of scientists uh, who are atheists propose an eternal universe that was like the mother universe of all these other little, they call them bubble universes. Okay, so so you have the multiple universe idea, is another alternative. Uh, one thing I'll say about both of these is that. It's very difficult to impossible to observe these other universes and so I I view these theories almost as more religious constructions than I do as scientific constructions. We talked about that in a prior session a little bit. Then you also have inflationary models and Hawking's theory. We saw in Hawking's theory that it requires imaginary numbers to get to this boundary state at the beginning where time does this weird time loop instead of producing a singularity. And if you put real numbers back in the equations, you get that Big Bang singularity moment in the model again. So there are no real big viable alternatives to the Big Bang. Most scientists will say that the generic theory of the Big Bang is the one that has stood the test of time and is the one that is the most likely scientific theory at this point. But before we move on, we're going to talk in this session about Young Earth objections to the Big Bang, or at least a couple small ones. There's, There's a lot of them. Whole books have been written on the subject. But I want to point out that every scientific theory throughout the history of mankind has had problems with it. Every single one of them has open scientific problems to one degree or another. That's why over time our view of science has changed. We talked about Uh, Earlier, how John Walton talks about how science is fluid over time, how God shouldn't pick one science, one time science over another time science, preferentially in Scripture. So he chose the science of the people in that day and that time, his initial audience, which would have been about 3,500 years ago. So science is fluid. It's a moving target. And there's all these open questions, even about the Big Bang, even though it seems to be the best model. And after reviewing some of the evidence for the Big Bang in my undergrad schooling, I still think it's the best option that we have scientifically right now. I also like the fact that the Big Bang seems to point to the existence of God. That seems to me to be a perk of the Big Bang model. But I just wanted to point out that even in mainstream scientific circles, there are well-known problems with the Big Bang. So just because young earthers are going to propose certain problems with the Big Bang doesn't mean that they're off their rockers for proposing scientific problems with the Big Bang. There are problems with every major scientific theory. We're going to talk about evolution in the future. We're going to talk about the problems with evolution. There's problems with all these theories. And that's what scientists do. They're always working on current problems in these theories and how they can get them uh, to make better sense. How they can fit, fit these puzzle pieces together. Talking about young earth creationism and the big bang. How does young earth creationism view the big bang? Well, in short, young earth creationism is essentially going to reject the big bang model and they're going to make both scriptural and scientific points uh, to advance their perspective. So let's start with the scriptural objections. What scriptural objections do young earth creationists use to attack the big bang? Here's uh, one article I think that was very helpful on Answers in Genesis is this one that that I've posted up here. We're going to quote from it a couple different times in this session. This is just one of many articles on the Answers in Genesis site about the Big Bang. This is sort of like their their high-level overview of their perspective. But you can dive into all the different problems they have in a lot more detail if you want to. So if you want to understand more about the young earth creationism perspective, I again recommend this answers in Genesis website. It's very comprehensive. So this is their first objection. The first objection is the Bible tells us that God created heaven, earth, and everything within them in the span of six days. And they don't just quote Genesis 1 for that. They quote from Exodus 20. And then it says, and rested on the seventh day. This is the basis for our work week, Exodus 20 verse 8. In contrast, the Big Bang model claims that the universe and Earth formed over billions of years. So their first objection is this six days idea. So they believe that in the beginning, in Genesis 1, you can read straight through. You get day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5. God's creating through that whole process. And that's in contrast to this Big Bang model where you've got billions of years. You've got slow development of stars and galaxies and planets and the things like that so that's their first objection the second objection is related to what we talked about earlier about the fourth day we talked about in an earlier session how the fourth day is often the sticking point for your reading of genesis and so here young earth creationism uh, says genesis tells us that god created the stars on the fourth day three days after the earth was created In contrast, the Big Bang model claims that stars existed billions of years before the Earth. So again, they see the creation event of the stars on day four. They see that is happening after the Earth was created. And so that's how they read Genesis 1. Again, this is Answers in Genesis. There may be slight tweaks to other young Earth views. But I'm just saying this particular view says fourth day, that's when stars happened. That's after the Earth. Whereas Big Bang has it the other way around, where you have, yeah, first generation stars, second generation stars, third generation stars, and eventually you get a universe that's habitable for something like the Earth. Here's a third objection scripturally. The Bible tells us that the Earth was made from water, Second Peter 3, 5, Genesis 1, 2 through 9, Psalm 24, 2. But the standard secular model teaches that the Earth began as a molten planet which cooled over millions of years, that the oceans were the result of asteroid or meteor impacts or from dissolution of comets as they entered Earth's atmosphere. So again, uh, what they're saying is you've got uh, the Earth coming out of water and they're saying that's how God describes it. That's how we should, how we should deal with it. The Big Bang Model has a different way of explaining uh, how the Earth got here. So those are three major scriptural objections that young Earth creationists pose about the Big Bang Model. We're going to talk about brief answers to them later in this particular session. I want to transition now to uh, some scientific objections that young Earth creationists make um, about the Big Bang model. And and these are really interesting to me because some of these do point to open problems in the Big Bang model. In other words, the scientists, uh, current scientists in the field studying the Big Bang, might say, hey, this is an open problem. We can't solve all these aspects yet. So there are some good points that get made here, but there are also uh, there is also hope in the scientific community to solve these problems, which young earth creationism will reject the hope that they will be able to solve those problems. The first one here is called missing monopoles. And if you've never heard of a monopole, a monopole is a massive particle with only one charge. So like a big positive charge or a big negative charge. And so in our current Big Bang model, the Big Bang should have produced these monopoles, these massive particles with only one charge. We should be able to see them. They should have a long half-life. They should have uh, been preserved uh, according to our current physical theories. So the fact that we look into the universe and we can't find them, that seems to be a prediction of the Big Bang theory that isn't being uh, brought out in the current data. And so young Earth creationists will say, well, because we're missing these monopoles, then Big Bang must be wrong. Whereas scientists will say, well, we're missing these monopoles, but there might be a good reason why we're missing these monopoles. And we need to think about, you know, keep looking at the data and figure it out. Another objection that young Earth creationism makes about the Big Bang from science is too little antimatter. So the Big Bang should have produced equal amounts of matter and antimatter, but instead, thankfully, slightly more matter than antimatter exists. So you may have heard the term antimatter if you're a Star Trek fan. They talk about antimatter. But basically, if you have a particle of matter and a particle of antimatter and they somehow collide, it's called annihilation. They both poof out of existence. So what, they, what scientists currently believe about the Big Bang is is that anything that produces matter should also produce antimatter. And it should do it in the same exact amount. What, what we actually observe is that there's slightly more matter in the universe than antimatter. It's like a billion and one particles to a billion or something like that. Or a million and one particles to a million. The ratio is that narrow. But it's enough to produce all the stars, all the galaxies, all the planets, all the matter that, we exist, that, that exists in this universe. If it didn't work out that way, the universe wouldn't look like it does right now. <laughs> it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be quite this developed. So there's another objection. Here's a, another objection, no population three stars. So in the beginning of the Big Bang, uh, you only really can get to hydrogen, helium and lithium. That's, those are the only elements on our periodic table that would have existed at the very, very beginning at these very hot temperatures. And so you can get to other things. You can get to larger elements through supernova. That's how you get there. So you have to have these, these population three stars that are sort of like your generation one stars that are very light stars. They're made of hydrogen, helium and lithium. and then they eventually burn out and have supernova. and then you can get to larger elements. And eventually you get to, you know carbon and Oxygen and iron and all the things that you need to have the earth and all the the materials that we need for earth We should be able to look into the sky and find these very very old generation one They call them also population three stars That should have just hydrogen helium and lithium. They should be a lot of them should be very long-lived We should be able to look out and see them. We haven't found one yet. And so that's a a problem for the Big Bang Uh, the final uh, scientific objection that I want to sp- mention specifically is no evidence for inflation. So one problem we talked about uh, the evidence of the cosmic microwave background radiation and how that, that got rid of the steady-state theory and it lended lend credibility to the Big Bang model. The problem is you have areas on one side of the universe and areas on the other side of the universe that appear to be in thermal equilibrium. That should not be possible. They should They should have to be close enough To have had particles go back and forth and interact with one another to get to that thermal equilibrium and so basically you have inflation as a possible way to solve that in the early in the early big bang that there was a massive inflation event and that's what allows for this cosmic background uh, microwave background radiation but there is no current scientific evidence for rapid early inflation it's just it's just a way to solve the problem so those are some of the objections I want to also focus in a little bit on how um, young earth creationism attacks the assumptions that we make when doing science. One of them is, we we talked briefly about this before, but I wanted to mention this again, that we have to be able to understand how young earth creationists explain how distant light could reach us. It could look 13.7 billion years old, but actually only be 6,000 years old. They have an explanation for it. They believe that there's an exponential decay on the speed of light. What they've done in this particular article that I've highlighted here is that they've used historical sources designed to catalog and measure the speed of light, and they propose that light reached its final speed that we observe now in 1960. And this is a graphical representation of it. This is not their exact numbers. But the idea is that light was very, very, very fast in the early, you know, time zero, you know, like 6, 7,000 years ago. You know, the speed of light was very fast, and then it's decayed over time. And then here we are on the very far right side of the graph. And we are observing things now. And the the speed of light has basically stayed the same that whole period of time, just in the last uh, 60 or so years. So that's their view. Now, I want to briefly address the Young Earth scriptural objections. Now, there's a lot out there on this. A lot of old Earth creationists have written a lot of materials talking about these specific objections like the Exodus 20 text. We're not going to get into all the details on that, but what we are going to do is we're going to briefly talk about how these other views would respond to these young earth creationist objections. And as we walk through these contrasts, you can decide which one you think is more plausible. So. The creation in six 24-hour days, not 13.7 billion years. That's the objection. That's the first scriptural objection that young earth used. So a day-age person would say, well, each day could be longer. It could be longer. We can read the text that way. Uh, there are other usage of the word day, and we can get there. What the gap will say is, it is six 24-hour days. It is six 24-hour days. But there could be a billion years between verses 1 and verse 2. There could be 13 billion years between verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, so there's, there's that way of reconciling it. You still get six 24-hour days, but you have a gap in between verse 1 and verse 2. Walton, as we're going to find out and the non-literal views, are basically just going to shrug at any of these objections. They're just basically going to say, hey, look, ancient Near East people, they're not interested in physical creation anyway we're thinking about the problem wrong. We're coming to the text with modern assumptions. We're not coming to the text from ancient assumptions. So Walton's not going to answer the question. He's just going to say, you're asking the wrong question. How about the objection of creating the earth before the sun? Well, what a day age person, at least what Hugh Ross would say, is he'd say, this is the perspective of an earth observer. So this is when the sun and the, and the other stars became unveiled for their purpose, where an earth observer could observe what was going on. It, it doesn't mean that the sun and the stars didn't exist before then. Um, a gap person will say it could be the reconstitution of the sun on day four. That's what some gap people will say, that in the, in the creation week, you had a couple of days where God was providing light somehow through another mechanism. And that on day four, God got around to reconstituting the sun. That's one gap option. Another gap option is it could be function or purpose oriented here. So there's multiple options with gap in terms of handling this issue of the creation of the earth before the sun. There's several ways of addressing these day four issues. Walton's going to say creation's function oriented. Again, you're 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 looking at the wrong part of the problem. This is not about when the earth was actually created or the sun was actually created. It was when the function got spelled out specifically for this group of people in this ancient society. What about the earth being made from water objection? I think most day age people would say, this is not meant to be a physical description of the process in Genesis one. It's not meant to be a physical description. The gap would say that the water piece was part of uh, the catastrophe. And that God had to reconstitute things. And then also, uh, you could have, this could also be function or purpose oriented. Walton is going to say, earth being made from water fits exactly with an ancient Near East understanding of the world. So the ancients all understood that water was an important part of creation. That's in the Babylonian myth, that's in the Egyptian myth. And so Walton's going to say, look, this fits exactly like what we would expect it to be. There's no, this is not talking about necessarily physically how God did it. We're talking about fitting it into the ancient Near East understanding of how the world began. I want to transition now quickly to answering some of the Young Earth scientific objections. I'm going to handle missing monopoles and the cosmic microwave background problem together. So rapid early inflation would really dilute monopoles, it turns out. Uh, which would make them harder for us to observe. And we talked about earlier how rapid early inflation also solves the causing microwave background radiation problem. There is a Physics Today article that I cited here, and if you're interested in going into more detail about uh, the rigorous science behind this, you're more than welcome to. But the bottom line is that this is an open problem in science. And so we have to ask ourselves a question. Do we want to hinge our scriptural understanding of how to read Genesis 1 and how to relate science and scripture together on an open scientific question that might get resolved in future years or do we want to let science sort of take its process work things out and eventually it might solve this problem I don't know if we want to point to problems in current scientific theories and say hey this is why our theory Genesis 1 is better than every other theory I think we should look to the text primarily for that. Too little antimatter. This objection, this scientific objection about the balance between matter and antimatter, actually just refutes an atheistic Big Bang model. Because what a creationist would say, what an old earth creationist would say, is, is that God hand guided creation. In other words, how do you get a Big Bang that has a slight difference between matter and antimatter? You get it if there was a designer, you don't get it if there was a naturalistic Big Bang out of nothing. So this doesn't even like attack really an old Earth view of the science. This just attacks like an atheistic model here. When we talk about population three stars, or what you might call generation one stars, those initial stars after the big bang, even though we've found no population three stars, we have found many metal light stars already at the far edge of what we can observe we found stars that are one generation removed from population three. This doesn't seem to be a big obstacle to me scientifically uh, because we've already found really metal light stars and just because we haven't observed something doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or that it didn't exist at some point in time. And since the ones that we have observed are at the far edge of what we can observe right now, there's a lot of hope that as we get better instruments, we get better Uh, telescopes in space and things like that, that we will be able to observe these. And so hopefully in the next 50 years, there'll be a paper out about, hey, we found our first population three star. So again, I don't think we should point to these uh, scientific things that are open problems and say, this is why our view of Genesis has to be the right one. I think we let the science, my perspective is we let the science do what the science is going to do. We make our decision based on the text itself. At the end here, I wanted to just sort of give an overview of what different views would say about the Big Bang. Just in, just in brief, we've talked a lot about young Earth and their objections and so answering some of their objections. But at the end, I'd like to sort of just mention a couple things here. We talked about the appearance of age view, which is a young Earth creationist view that says that, the, yes, the universe appears old, but God is essentially doing that to test people. And so you can choose to believe what the text says at 6,000 year old universe, or you can choose to believe what science says. Um, And in essence, God is sort of trying to dupe people. And I'm very concerned with this theory. But just to point out what they'll say about the Big Bang, the appearance of age younger creationist view will agree with the scientific evidence. They'll say, yes, the universe does appear old. But then they'll say that God is testing us to choose between his word and science. And I have philosophical problems with that, as I've talked about before. The day-age view will agree with the scientific evidence for the Big Bang. They'll say that each day could be billions of years. And in fact, we saw in an earlier session that Gerald Schroeder's model of Genesis 1 actually uses the Big Bang. It uses general relativity, and it talks about how each day is successively shorter than the last, and he uses an an exponential decay for that as well. And so not only will day-age agree with the scientific evidence, uh, some day-age proponents actually have used the Big Bang uh, to help inform how they read Genesis one, which is really interesting. Gap theory and the Big Bang. Well, gap theory will, again, most gap theorists will just agree with the scientific evidence for the Big Bang. And what one that they'll take is that there's no reason to argue with uh, the scientific evidence when a long time could have elapsed between verse 1 and verse 2. There's just no reason to say the universe isn't 13.7 billion years old, or whatever science says it is. Again, gap theory, there's no concerns. Non-literal views in the Big Bang. Uh, Collins will agree with the scientific evidence for the Big Bang. He'll say God did the Big Bang, and then God sort of shaped the universe towards getting to life, and he'll say that God further shaped the evolutionary process that God worked within evolution. We'll talk about that more in a future session, but that's what Collins will say. Then Walton's view is just, he doesn't care. (laughs) He thinks that Genesis is ancient cosmology. Uh, He doesn't think that this text is talking about modern cosmology, so he's not really going to care about Big Bang. He's sort of, like we've talked about, he's sort of agnostic about the Big Bang specifically. He says this is not an issue that the ancients would have thought about. Uh, as they were listening to the text or reading the text for the first time, that that initial audience. So that's just a brief survey of all these different views in relationship to the Big Bang. It seems at the end of this survey, we have several choices. Uh, We can attack the scientific evidence for the Big Bang and hold the mainline young Earth creationist view. That's sort of the first option we have in relating scripture with science and the Big Bang. We can attack the scientific evidence for the Big Bang. We can hold the mainline Young Earth view. The second option is we can accept the scientific evidence for the Big Bang and have an old Earth view, or even an appearance of age Young Earth view. Any of those will accept the scientific evidence. And then the third option is you can attack or accept the scientific evidence and hold a non-literal view. So if you hold to Collins's view, or you hold the Walton's view or any really any non-literal view you can pick or choose the scientific evidence as you want Collins likes the scientific evidence Walton doesn't care as much vis-a-vis Genesis 1 at least and so that those are sort of our, our major options I also want to sort of end with another sort of proposition which is even if you believe that the young earth view is the most related to the text so even if you hold that the initial audience would have understood the universe as young. I want to propose to you the idea that just because they viewed, they possibly viewed the universe and the earth as young, doesn't mean that we have to. We've talked about their view of the world, how God didn't correct their view of intestines versus the brain, for example. So even if you believe that the most honest way to read the text is the young earth way, That's fine, you can believe that. But what I'm suggesting to you is that still means we have to engage with the scientific evidence, I believe. Uh, Because just because the ancient person reading this text or listening to this text for the first time, even if you think that was in their worldview, a young earth kind of a mindset was in their worldview, it doesn't mean that we have to view things the same way. We now know that the brain is what sends signals to our bodies instead of the intestines. So that is my challenge. Uh, in my exhortation re- regarding this and in terms of a survey of the options. And so here, here are some options, and there may be more, but uh, these are the options that I can think of at this time. And I encourage you to think deeply about these issues and to engage with the different perspectives and how they can possibly relate to the scientific theory of the Big Bang. And so we'll see more as we continue working through Scripture and science together.
0: Well, that brings this teaching to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 465, Scripture and Science Part 7, Genesis and the Big Bang, and leave your questions and comments there. Speaking of which, on our episode from last week, we got in a couple of comments. Uh, one of them was from Peter, who responded to my challenge. Uh, I had asked the question, is there any Bible translation that puts Genesis 1-2 as the earth became without form and void, as opposed to the earth was without form and void. And he cited the NIV 1984 footnote, which reads, or possibly became. So thanks for that, Peter. That may lend a little credibility. The NIV is certainly a very influential translation. I think that I saw a stat just a couple days ago that it is currently the number one selling translation at least in the English-speaking world. And I wonder what their footnote says today, you know, if they still include that or not. Uh, But it's still not in the main translation, uh, but pretty close as a footnote. So I appreciate you bringing that in. If if you're not sure what I'm talking about, take a look at our last episode where we talked about the gap theory and especially the YouTube follow-up if you're really into it. Also, just wanted to let you know that we've got a number of interviews coming up, I've got an interview scheduled with Mary DeMuth to talk about her book that covers Parenting Wayward Adult Children, Uh, and I'm excited about that interview. I also managed to book Dale Allison, uh, who's a renowned New Testament or or historical Jesus scholar, and to talk about his new book on experiencing miracles and experiencing the supernatural, Uh, not the sort of person you would expect to write this kind of a book considering he has operated during his career under the skeptical assumptions of modern day historiography that it essentially excludes miracles from conversation and he's he's written a book and he's talking about his own personal experiences of the divine as well as a lot of other people's and I'm so I'm excited about that interview also have Justin Bailey coming on to talk about cultural apologetics and how do we interact with our society today So my plan is to do one or two more episodes of Science and Scripture and then take a little break and move into these interviews so that you can get exposed to these interesting books and the ideas that they present before returning back to Scripture and Science and continuing through. So stay tuned for that. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, This weekend, I am at the UCA Conference. Very excited about that in Springfield, Ohio, a place I've never been. Looking forward to checking it out. And I'll be presenting on The Key of Truth, an obscure document, only one manuscript of which survives on the planet. I'm talking about the 18th and 19th century Armenian Unitarians. That's Unitarians from the country of Armenia. So if if you're able to come to the conference, would love to see you there. Stop by and say hi. If not, this talk will be out eventually. Usually there's a rollout procedure for releasing conference materials, uh, usually about one a month. So uh, I'll certainly let you know when that's available. But I will be putting up on Recitudio, uh the entire text of The Key of Truth, which I have free f- uh, free in the public domain, the translation done in 1898 by Frederick Connybert. And I will also put my paper on there. And uh, I may do some podcasts on the subject. I have a lot to say. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure if I will or not. Depends on what the interest is. It is an obscure group of Christians, but I think they deserve a voice. You know, nobody's ever heard of them. Those who have heard of them have mislabeled them or rejected them or persecuted them. And I think it's time for this, this group to be able to speak for itself and to inspire us to hold firmly to our faith in our own time when it's so easy and people aren't cutting our noses off for our faith or exiling us to Siberia. So stay tuned for more about that. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you'd like to support Restitudio, you can do that online at restitudio.org, either one-time gifts or monthly gifts. We certainly appreciate either one or whatever you can do. And we'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.